0: As always, it's a delight to turn to God's Word together and very thankful to Pastor Collins last week for his excellent sermon in Jeremiah as I was just coming back from our General Assembly. But this morning we return to Ephesians where we pick up in chapter 5. Just to give you a brief refresher, we last worked through verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 where we saw God's call to live in a glorious apprenticeship. Imitating God himself who has recreated us in his likeness, walking in love for one another as Christ loved us, that we might please him. And while we are to walk in love, Paul also called us to put off sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness that must not even be named among the saints. If you remember, we saw that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness were a, a broad set of terms that included any type of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. In fact, God's Word clearly and repeatedly guards the goodness of marriage as God has created it by identifying all sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman as sinful rebellion against God. But given our own sin and given our cultural context, it's easy to find the Bible's standards restrictive, Maybe they don't even seem credible to some, given your experience. In fact, many would say that the Bible is outdated and needs to be accommodated based on what we now know about sexuality and identity. But God's Word is still our authority, and God's Word still gives us the most credible vision for marriage and sexuality for every one of us. And my goal this morning is to help us see that from Scripture. We're going to follow God's word in a number of directions, but let's start with Ephesians 5, where we'll read verses 3 through 7, and then also down at verses 31 and 32. Let's read God's word together this morning. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not become partakers or excuse me partners with them then jump down to the end of the chapter verses 31 and 32 or paul writes this therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. Give us understanding this morning. Use your word by the power of your spirit to shape our hearts and minds and to draw us closer to you, to enable us to obey you for your honor and glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you were asked how you would describe the difference between a castle and a prison. After all, in the medieval era, the two often were the same building. And even today, if you look at them, both have high walls. Both have guards stationed at the entrances. If you live in Lancaster, both have turrets and battlements on the walls. So from the outside, they even look the same. Of course, the main difference between a castle and a prison has to do with their nature and their purpose. When it comes to those on the inside, one is meant to confine and to restrict. The other is meant to protect and secure. One is meant to take away freedom and withhold privilege. The other promotes flourishing and joy under the care of the king. And the question is, which of these two buildings are God's laws most like? A castle or a prison? Many today would argue that God's rules, particularly about sexuality, are restrictive and repressive and more like a prison. But the Bible begins and ends with a beautiful vision for marriage, explaining God's plan for sexuality that is meant for our good to promote our Flourishing to protect us and to glorify our God, and his plan is just as true and relevant and credible today as it was two thousand years ago. And I want us to see us see it that see that this morning by looking first at God's pattern, and then at God's purpose, and finally at Satan's plan. So let's start this morning by considering God's pattern for sexuality in marriage. And let's start at the very beginning, which is, of course, a very good place to start. And so, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to flip back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We want to look carefully at God's Word here in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God gives us the big picture of His creation of mankind. He creates man male and female. And in verses 27 and 28, God creates male and female and gives them a calling to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. But then in Genesis chapter 2, God gives the details of how he creates mankind. We learn that Adam was created first out of the dust of the ground, but he was alone and unable to fulfill the calling that God had given him to multiply and fill the earth. Now some of you may know from your own workplaces the frustration of being called to do something that you're unable to do or unequipped to do. And Adam finds himself in that situation here in Genesis 2. But God sees the problem before Adam does and creates a helper fit for him. God creates woman from Adam's rib. And then God officiates the first outdoor wedding ceremony, bringing Eve through the garden to Adam. And Adam bursts into song. You see it there in verse 23. But after God creates man and woman, God then sets the pattern for all mankind in verse 24, saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, as sex seals and completes the union of marriage and becomes the means of fulfilling God's call to multiply and fill the earth. This is the beginning. And I think in the beginning, there are four things we learn about God's pattern for sexuality and marriage that are reiterated throughout the Bible. Let me go over those briefly. To begin, we see that sexuality is protected by a covenant commitment between husband and wife. Genesis 2 says that a man shall leave his father and mother and what? He shall hold fast to his wife. Or as the old language says, shall cleave to his wife. There's a holding fast covenant with each other that guards and protects the intimacy of marriage. Jesus describes the commitment in Mark 10, saying what God has joined together, let no man separate. And this isn't a restriction. This isn't a a rule to confine. It's a tremendous blessing. Because while many today may try to reduce sexuality to a desire or appetite like hunger, sexuality is the way we give ourselves most completely and vulnerably to another person. And to do so without the protection of a covenant commitment is to put ourselves at risk at the deepest level. Now my guess is that none of us would dream of just handing over the keys and title of our home to someone else without a contract and a down payment at minimum. That's for our protection so we don't lose our home. But how much more should we not give ourselves most vulnerably to another without the security of a covenant vow before God and before one another? Second we see that sexuality in marriage expresses and fulfills a unique union or oneness between husband and wife. Genesis 2 says that they, that is the man and his wife, shall become one flesh. And Jesus in Mark 10 adds to this saying, so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Now as Sam Albury points out, one here is not so much about a mathematical number, as about a character quality of our triune God, who as Father, Son, and Spirit is one. The marriage relationship is the most intimate relationship people can have, uniting two people so that they are one in reputation and in life. And as one, they reflect the character of God's love. But Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, that we become one body with anyone we engage with sexually. And to attempt this union outside the covenant commitment of marriage is to devalue its purpose, it's to fail to reflect God's character, and it's to risk being stuck together and pulled apart again repeatedly, a sin that Paul says is against our own body. For God's plan for sexuality is to be a glue, to bind one with our spouse, and we deny that role to our harm. Thirdly, we see that sexuality in marriage brings intimacy in difference. And here I want to make sure that you look at God's Word carefully. Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. The wording is so important. God makes it clear that male and female, different but complementary, was required for marriage. God creates woman, and Adam declares in verse 23, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Similarity and compatibility. But then he declares, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is difference. And this difference is not in personality or temperament, but in gender. And then notice what the text says. Having talked about male and female, similar but different, the text in verse 24 says, Therefore, meaning since God created male and female, therefore, A man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife, and they shall begin one flesh. Jesus in Mark 10 makes this relationship even more clear, saying, From the beginning of creation God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, marriage and the one flesh of sexuality only exist because male and female exist. If you take away gender and the gender difference, you cannot have either marriage or the one flesh union that God created from the very beginning. Well, fourthly then, we see that sexuality and marriage produces new life. When Adam was alone, he was unable to complete God's calling to be fruitful and multiply. And so God created a helper fit for him so they could fulfill this mandate. And so Adam knew his wife Eve, and they had children, and the pattern continued by God's command. And while, of course, we would acknowledge that after the fall, some experience the grief and loss of infertility, that suffering that impacts some does not take away from God's pattern that marriage be the kind of relationship that produces new life as the key instrument to fulfill his plan. And so what do we see right from the beginning? That God's plan for sexuality and marriage involves covenant vows to protect it, involves oneness and union together, involves intimacy and difference, and produces new life. But maybe that raises a question. Why? Why did God create things this way? Was this just a random pattern and random boundaries that God decided to put in place? And the answer to that is a resounding no. It is not a random plan. God had a purpose for creating sexuality and marriage this way. And the purpose was this. It was to be the best picture mankind had of God's own love for his people. We begin to see this in the Old Testament, where God talks about his covenant love for Israel over and over in terms of marriage. In Ezekiel 16, God describes his love for Israel and he talks about himself as a groom who comes and takes initiative and makes a vow to his bride, making her his, so that she became exceedingly beautiful and renowned among the nations as his wife. In Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah describes Israel's unfaithfulness to God as adultery in their marriage. But then God uses Hosea Chapter 3 to declare that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, he will again betroth her to himself and will again love her as his wife. And so clearly, marriage was uniquely appropriate as a picture of God's love for his people. And God continues to come back to marriage as a picture of his covenant love. But then in the New Testament, this becomes even more clear. And we saw this in Ephesians 5 that we read at the beginning today. Paul talks about marriage and about sexuality in particular and he looks at God's pattern for marriage from Genesis 2 and he makes an unexpected statement. He says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it, the one flesh union of sexuality and marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Now this This elevates sexuality and marriage even further, for now it is not only a good gift from God, but it is also God's clearest picture of and testimony to His own love for His church in Jesus Christ. In fact, marriage points back to Christ's pursuing love for His people. It points now to our security in Christ's commitment to us, and it points forward as a foretaste to that marriage feast of the Lamb that we will experience when Christ comes again. Now, I want us to to notice if we go back to God's pattern for sexuality and marriage, we can see how God's pattern is uniquely tailored in every aspect to show us Christ's love. Sexuality and marriage is guarded by a covenant commitment even as we give ourselves completely to Christ and are secured by his covenant commitment to us. And nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sexuality in marriage expresses and fulfills a unique oneness. Just as Christ unites us to himself in an intimate union. Praying in John 17 that we might be one with him as he is one with the Father. Sexuality in marriage is intimacy, indifference, man with woman. Just as Christ's saving love, the love He would give that could save sinners, is only possible because He is God and we are man. Intimacy, indifference, God and man, man and woman. And sexuality and marriage produces new life, just as Christ's self-giving love for His church produces new life in us and multiplies and fills the kingdom of God, will fill the new heavens and new earth. In other words, what we should see is that every aspect of God's pattern for sexuality and marriage enables us to fulfill God's purpose and so display His own character and His own love for his people in Christ. But you realize what this also means. This also means that to break God's pattern in any area, whether that's by sexual activity outside of the covenant commitment before marriage, or to break the oneness of marriage in adultery, or to abandon and break the intimacy indifference in life-giving pattern by pursuing same-sex intimacy, To break God's pattern in any one of those respects is not freedom. It is rebellion that mars the picture that God has given us of his character and love. Which means that to break God's pattern in any of these areas is to give the world a false testimony about God and about his love for the church. And that's why it should come as no surprise to us that these three categories of sexuality as Paul summarizes so well in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Sexual activity before marriage, adultery in marriage, and same-gendered sexual activity are the three categories that are consistently forbidden throughout Scripture, both for our good and for His glory, that His character and love might be known. Well, this is God's pattern and God's purpose. But before we move on, we need to comment briefly On Satan's plan because you can be sure of this if sexuality and marriage is God's clearest earthly picture of Christ's love for his church you better bet that Satan's primary attacks are going to be to undermine and distort that picture in Ephesians 5 Paul warned the church let no one deceive you with empty words what does that tell us That we can expect that there will be empty attempts to deceive us, attempts to tell us from the world our own flesh and the devil to convince us that we do not need to follow the Bible's boundaries for sexuality. In Paul's day, one of the common deceitful arguments was that Jesus came to save our souls and since he saved our souls, what we do with our bodies is of not great importance. Today, of course, there are many deceitful arguments, but perhaps the most central is that each person has core feelings and desires that determine our identity and what we most need, and that those desires and core identity must be expressed and lived out, because to deny them is to deny who we are, to let someone else's standards or expectations limit us is to lose our freedom to pursue what we need to be and our freedom to be true humans and to have that agency. Zach Efron put it this way in The Greatest Showman, it's up to you, it's up to me. No one can say what we get to be. Why don't we rewrite the stars? I love the song, it's a beautiful song, but the philosophy is a lie. Not because we don't have these feelings and desires, but because it assumes our desires and our perceived freedoms are more reliable than the plan and the boundaries that God has put in place. It ignores Jeremiah 17:9, that reminds us that our hearts are deceitful above everything else. It ignores Psalm 139 that reminds us that God has intentionally knit each of us together in the womb exactly how he intended us to be. And it ignores Isaiah 48. Which reminds us that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Now voices around us might counter that the Bible's standards may have been needed in an ancient society, and an ancient social system, but today they are unnecessarily restrictive based on what we know about sexuality and identity. And they cut off something that is good for us. But the brief pleasure of sin never satisfies in the long term and leads to consequences in this life and wrath in the life to come. And the reality is, and this is the interesting thing, God's ways are still best. And as with much wisdom, you don't even need to be a Christian to realize that often. Which is why I think the Spectator magazine, not at all a Christian magazine, ran an article just a few weeks ago on the rising sexual counter-revolution. This is a growing movement of young people who have opted for modesty, chastity, and marriage and will only date others committed to the same. These are not believers. The article writes, these are not uptight fundamentalists. That would probably be us. Nor are they embittered feminists. These are graduates of Yale and Harvard. They're members of the Ivy-educated elite who are pushing back against a culture of unbounded sexual freedom that they now see as toxic to their individual well-being and to the long-term health of American society. Tim Keller shares Wendy Plump's more personal reflection from the New York Times. She claims that the thrill of sexual freedom can't hold a candle to the monument of success that she sees in her parents' 50-year marriage. In the end, she says, My parents' marriage, even with all its challenges, was more interesting and more fulfilling than all of the fleeting romances, no matter how exciting they seemed at the time. Going in another direction, Sam Albury argues that denying his same-sex desires, hard though it may seem at times, Is part of God's good plan that has enabled him to more greatly understand the character of God and reflect the image of Christ. This is because God has created sexuality and marriage to work according to his plan for his purposes, and we pursue it our own way to our own harm. But when it comes right down to it, we have to say that we don't just obey God's laws when we see that they work out for our good. We obey God's word because it is our duty to obey his word. In fact, laws are never written for the people who want to obey them. Laws are there for the times when we don't want to obey them, and they stand like iron gates blocking our way to our own destruction. Tim Keller recalls a beautiful scene from Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre. Many of you have probably read this novel, and you may remember that Jane has fallen in love with and longs to marry Mr. Rochester, only to discover that Mr. Rochester is actually already married. His wife is mentally insane, and she lives in an attic room. And the miserable Mr. Rochester comes and declares his love for Jane and begs her to live with him as his mistress which she desperately desires to do as the one she loves. And listen to Jane as she struggles. She says, While he spoke, my very conscience and reason charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke as loud as feeling, Oh, comply, think of his misery, soothe him, save him, love him, tell him you love him and will be his. Who will be injured by what you do? We know those rationalizing voices, don't we? Did God really say, but He didn't mean, you won't surely die? Who would be hurt? Here's Jane's reply Still indomitable was the reply I will keep the law given by God. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for moments such as this when my body and soul rise in mutiny against them. If at my individual convenience I may break God's law, what is its worth? They have a worth. And if I cannot believe it now, it is only because my veins are running fire and my heart is beating faster than I can count its throbs. So foregone determinations are all that I have to stand by this hour. And there I plant my foot. Can you imagine a better expression of what it means to stand on God's word in the face of temptation when we don't understand God's word at that time, but we know what he has said. And so there we must plant our feet. And this morning, kids, teens, adults... This should be our greatest takeaway. That God's word and God's law are always right and they are made for our good and our flourishing in Him. And only when we stand there under His authority will we find His blessing for our good and for His glory whether we can see it right now or not. As we come to the end this morning, can I just draw our attention To the fact that becoming one flesh, God's plan and pattern for sexuality and marriage, refers to Christ and his church, and that is such an encouragement to us. Of course, it means that Christ's love will tell us something about how we should live out our marriage, and we'll see that more in a few weeks. But it also means that the joy of sexual intimacy in marriage tells us something about the glory and the goodness that is ours in Christ. It reminds us of the total security that we have in Christ's covenant commitment to us. It reminds us of the intimate union we have with Christ, of the joy of the soul deep pleasure of being fully known and fully loved by him. And so this morning, let the earthly picture that God has given us do its work and magnify our anticipation and pique our expectation of the rich blessing we look forward to when Christ returns and the marriage feast of the Lamb is held, and we become His in perfect intimacy and security and delight for all eternity. Now for those this morning who are not married, whom God has not given this picture here on earth, don't discount the significant testimony to Christ and to His character that you give when you obey His pattern for His purpose and sexuality and marriage. Waiting or living in patience and trust and obedience. And let the joy of God's coming gift in Christ that will be yours strengthen your resolve not to mar the picture He has given us. Or to use our bodies our way for ourselves. But to follow the purpose and pattern he has given for his glory. For those of you whose marriages are very broken pictures. Know that the reality of Christ's coming wedding with you is everything that you long for. After all, if you pull out a postcard of Paris. And look at it in order to get excited about your coming trip to Paris. If that postcard gets ripped and bent and smeared with a stain, you may not have a good picture of what's coming, but that marred postcard doesn't diminish the reality of Paris which is still waiting for you when you arrive. And let the grief of sin's effect on this life only point you all the more strongly to the hope of what is yours in Christ Jesus. And will be yours fully when he comes again. And for those who have disobeyed, who have crossed God's boundaries, our failure and our rebellion against our God and our King can leave us discouraged and ashamed. And if this is where you find yourself this morning, Paul reminds us clearly that there is hope for you. As Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, yes, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. How does this washing, this sanctification, this justifying redemption become yours? Well, through repentance, through naming sin as sin, And then turning to seek the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness through His blood. Because there is no sin so great, so long, or so wide, that the blood of an infinite Savior cannot completely wash clean when we come in forgiveness and faith in Him. After all, that brings us right back to the nature of Christ's love, doesn't it? To the nature of Christ's love that sexuality and marriage points us to, to Christ who pursued us and found us and gave himself completely for us in order to make us his and to draw us into his embrace that we might know the joy of being known and loved in full intimacy with him forever. May we know the hope and the joy that he offers and may we live in a way that proclaims his great love for us to one another and to the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for this good gift that you have given us. This good gift of sexuality and marriage that you protect and bound that we might flourish for our good and the safety of your limits. Father, may we see this picture of your love for us. May your word this morning remind us of the beauty of your love and what you have done for us. And may we leave encouraged in Christ, washed clean in Christ, eager for the day when we will be with Christ. And we pray that as we live in faithful obedience to you, planting our foot on your rules when we see their goodness and even when we don't, may it be a testimony of your kingship and lordship and honor and and glory to all those around us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.